Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. A new conspiracy indictment from the FBI has named four prominent members of the Proud Boys as leaders of the group's attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The New York Times reports. Proud Proud Boys, Boys, stand back and stand by. Out of the Capitol riot manhunt, a new federal indictment that charges two New York men, identifying them as Proud Boys, members of that white nationalist group that wears yellow and black. Two of them, leaders of the Proud Boys chapters in Philadelphia and North Carolina, are facing their first charges in the riot, while two others were previously charged and are now facing new allegations. Zach Real, the leader of the Philadelphia Proud Boys, was arrested early Wednesday after the Philadelphia Inquirer reported pictures of him leading a large group beyond the Capitol security perimeter. They were some of the most militant people there because they were used to it, right? They were, they spent the last few years sort of ramping up and practicing. The other new arrest, Charles Donahoe, leads a Proud Boys chapter in North Carolina. The new indictment also spelled bad news for Proud Boys Ethan Nordeen and Joe Biggs who were already charged with their alleged roles in the attack. The men are accused of leading a group of the offensive into the Capitol. Nordine and Biggs were previously arrested, but released from jail in March and January, respectively. 30-year-old Ethan Nordine, also known as Rufio Panman, faces several charges, and those include obstructing or impeding an official proceeding, aiding and abetting, knowingly entering or remaining in restricted buildings or grounds, and violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. Investigators have said that Biggs and Nordine, equipped with radios and a bullhorn, led a mob of about 100 members and supporters of the group that marched through the streets of Washington on January 6th, chanting slogans and ultimately breached security barriers at the Capitol. Break out Kyle! 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 Some Proud Boys were among the first to shatter windows and enter the building confronting police officers inside. Prosecutors contend that Nordine led the Proud Boy mob in tactical planning that day to avoid detection, a strategy that allegedly involved voiding clothing with the group's distinctive black and gold laurel insignia, splitting into groups to approach the building from different vantage points, and looking to recruit so-called normies, or non-proud boys, in the crowds to join the capital siege. Thirty-year-old Ethan Nordine has emerged in the investigation as the de facto leader of the Proud Boys' assault on the Capitol. It's a charge he has, of course, vigorously denied, but photo and video evidence paints a damning picture of the events that occurred that day. According to federal court documents, Nordine was internally nominated to have war powers and assume ultimate leadership of the group's activities. He was given the mantle of ultimate leadership of the Proud Boys' activities on January 6th, following the January 4th arrest of leader Enrique Tarrio upon his arrival in Washington, D.C. I think the Department of Justice is trying to build enough evidence to charge seditious conspiracy against the leaders and organizers of the riots. It's not enough to just charge these low-level offenses of trespass and 
uh, unlawful entry. To do justice, you need to go up the chain. The court documents and prosecutors' statements offer a fascinating, if not frightening, look into how groups like the Proud Boys operate. In the 24-page filing, U.S. prosecutors say Nordine, who they say calls himself the sergeant of arms of the Seattle Proud Boys, was personally active in planning the group's activities on January 6th and used social media to recruit members, raise money, and gather military-style equipment in the weeks leading up to it. We got a whole boatload of Proud Boys walking through here, folks. On the day of the attack, they say the defendant, dressed all in black, wearing a tactical vest, led the Proud Boys through the use of encrypted communications and military-style equipment. He led them with the specific plans to split up into groups, attempt to break into the Capitol building from as many different points as possible, and prevent the joint session of Congress from certifying the Electoral College results, prosecutors wrote. They also alleged that Nordeen, a former bodybuilder, positioned his large frame near the front of the crowd and stalked the front line in an apparent effort to intimidate law enforcement and encourage the crowd. Nordeen, who also goes by the name Rufio Panman, was first arrested in his home state of Washington on February 3rd on several federal charges, including violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds, aiding and abetting depredation against government property and knowingly entering restricted grounds. The most serious charge, obstructing or impending an official proceeding, carries a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. All of this mayhem plainly envisioned that those carrying out defendant's stated vision, the reawakening of 1776, would at least attempt to destroy federal government property and force their way inside the building, prosecutors wrote. There was simply no other way for them to enter the Capitol building. Displaying chilling communique from parlor, Proud Boy members hoped to inspire people outside their group to burn the city to ash today and smash some pigs to dust, according to the prosecutors. We are headed into a new phase of American domestic violent extremism, where the insurrection was this flash in the pan, which showed you the parameters of the organizations that were there. I really feel strongly we are headed into insurgency. The same case against Proud Boys is backed up by thousands of hours of documentary evidence and prosecutors are moving methodically to prove not just that they were there, but that this was planned and orchestrated well in advance of January 6th. That it was truly a conspiracy to prevent the Electoral College from doing their constitutional duties delegated to them by the people. The fact is, the Proud Boys came to Washington specifically to cause mayhem on January 6th and belies any claim that they are nothing more than a bunch of beer-drinking Western chauvinists simply defending themselves when attacked. A member of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, has been charged for allegedly pepper-spraying police during the riot on the Capitol. DOJ prosecutors say Christopher Worrell attended the siege dressed in tactical gear with an earpiece and armed with pepper spray. This is how they preferred to view themselves and was the message they preferred for the outside world to see. It also allowed them to stay under the radar of law enforcement and the FBI who came to believe that the Proud Boys were not a threat. 
In many cases, local law enforcement would tolerate their presence on the streets, giving them tacit approval to act as an auxiliary force in places like Portland, where violent street clashes between Antifa and far-right groups roiled the city for over the summer. The Proud Boys, since the insurrection and since uh, President Trump left office and since he uh, disavowed the violence uh, at the Capitol after it happened, they have completely... uh, separated from him. They have accused him of being weak. Uh, They are so upset in their communications and their memes and these chat rooms and groups about uh, at the president. They're they're upset that he didn't support them, that he didn't pardon the Proud Boys or other groups or other members who stormed the Capitol because they see it as something they did for him. They wanted him to fight to stay in office. In an intelligence report released Tuesday that surprised absolutely nobody, It was revealed that Russian President Vladimir Putin authorized extensive efforts to hurt the candidacy of Joe Biden during the election last year, including by mounting covert operations to influence people close to President Donald J. Trump. When they say influencing people close to Donald J. Trump, the intelligence report is speaking of pretty much one man and one man only. That's fucking Rudy Giuliani, who relentlessly pushed accusations of corruption about President Biden and his family involving the Ukraine. We're following a landmark U.S. intelligence community uh, briefing uh, a report giving the most comprehensive assessment yet of foreign threats to the 2020 presidential election here in the United States. It concludes that Russia once again interfered in the race for the White House, this time trying to get former President Trump re-elected by denigrating Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. Rudy essentially posted himself in Ukraine like an imbecile and went digging for dirt, accepting information from literally anybody who had even a shred of negative information to peddle on the Biden family. In a scathing analysis of the report released yesterday, the Washington Post likened Giuliani to the international espionage equivalent of a wide-eyed tourist walking around with his wallet hanging out of his back pocket. He was a sucker for the ages and made for an irresistible target. Tonight, there are growing questions about the man once known as America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, and if he is being used by Russia to influence the 2020 presidential campaign. According to the intelligence report, in May of 2019, Rudy very publicly traveled to the Ukraine on a dubious fact-finding mission. Over the course of several weeks, Giuliani met with a shady cast of characters straight out of a John Le Carre novel who offered tantalizing but unproven dirt on Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Taking information no, from Russians. No, no. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with taking information from Russians. There's nothing wrong with taking depends information. depends on where it came from. It depends on where it came from. It was that material which led Trump to make his ill-advised perfect phone call to Ukrainian President Zelensky, which ultimately led to his first impeachment. But following his acquittal, an emboldened Trump, rather than being chastened of his extracurricular activities in Ukraine, sent Rudy back to dig up even more dirt as it became apparent that Biden would be the Democratic nominee, something Trump always feared above and beyond all else. This time, though, Rudy returned with a camera crew from One America News and even more money to spend on dirt. 
Once again, he hovered up piles of made-up bullshit, thinking he had stumbled upon a treasure trove of damaging information on the Bidens. There's new reporting in the Washington Post. The headline, White House was warned Giuliani was target of Russian intelligence operation to feed misinformation to Trump. Continuing from the Washington Post story, quote, the warnings were based on multiple sources, including intercepted communications that showed Giuliani was interacting with people tied to Russian intelligence during a December 2019 trip to Ukraine, where he was gathering information that he thought would expose corrupt acts by former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. So Rudy, believing that he has indeed uncovered a meth load of compromat, began plotting its dissemination. In reality, Giuliani had been an unwitting stooge for various Russian intelligence factions. The report says these Russian proxies met with and provided materials to Trump administration leaked U.S. persons to advocate for formal investigations, hired a U.S. firm to petition U.S. officials, and attempted to make contact with several senior U.S. officials. They also made contact with established U.S. media figures and helped produce a documentary that aired on the U.S. television network in late January of 2020. So it's extraordinary that Russia's strategy was to spread disinformation using American media organizations like Fox and OAN, but even more alarmingly, senior members of the Senate and the U.S. House like Ron Johnson and Devin Nunes in an effort to launder their disinformation in a way that the media might find credible. Luckily, the media, I think most of it, and 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 the rest of us knew what was up and called foul on it. And with Rudy, they had found the world's most useful idiot. When the information began dribbling out as part of Trump's desperate but laughable October surprise, it had little material effect on Biden's standing in the polls. Nobody would publish this stuff, not even fucking Fox News, who will literally report anything. But not this time, though. And it came from the very top, like Rupert himself. But it's just an extraordinary statement about how the Republican Party has lost its way, that they would somehow talk themselves into becoming, and this is a term of art, useful idiots for the Kremlin, for Vladimir Putin. Giuliani was peddling laughably tainted goods, and he didn't want Fox News implicated in some Russian misinformation campaign. That didn't stop the New York Post from bathing in filth, though. That said, the Post was created as an organ of filth, so going all in on Hunter Biden, despite the dubious provenance of its information, was a natural inclination. The president was personally warned by the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, that the man who provided the information to the tabloid, his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, was the target of a Russian influence campaign aimed at discrediting Biden. Sources say the president did not seem concerned. So they made a big deal out of his laptop, emails and photographs. But in the end, even that backfired as it mostly painted a picture of a loving father in anguish over his son's addiction. Still, Hunter Biden became a conservative rallying cry over the summer for every right-wing crank looking to score points over Facebook with his family. In the end, though, it just died on the vine. Like everything else Giuliani touched, it became known as a Rudy Special, code word for something that became an absolute shit show of the highest order. Even in Trump's notoriously incompetent universe of sycophants, Rudy was renowned for his ability to fuck up above and beyond anyone else. Everything he did turned to shit. 
starting with him pulling his putt on camera for Sasha Baron Cohen during the Barat movie, and move on to the Four Seasons total landscaping debacle, and the fact that his face began to literally melt under the hot lights during a press conference as he made up allegations of election fraud, and that's Rudy in a fucking nutshell. Put down your crumb. She's 15. She's too old for you. What, why are you no, she's my daughter. Please, take me instead. Take my anus. No, no, take my anus. Do not have her. I'm better than him. No, I better. My back pussy very tight. No. So good work, fella. How he has managed to skate away unscathed from criminal indictments thus far, to me, is truly remarkable. His own incompetence may actually wind up being his saving grace. But he may be on borrowed time. And now, for the main event. I have spoken a great deal lately about the schizophrenic nature of our current political reality. That, on one hand, there is this moment of hope and healing as President Biden guides us back from the darkness. But then there is what is still lurking out there beyond our grasp. The domestic terror threat continues to grow as these groups have become atomized in the wake of federal investigations. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers may be on the ropes, but their ideology and desire for chaos and violence persists. How it will manifest in the coming months and years is the million-dollar question. Today, for the first time, I bring back one of my all-time favorite guests on Mea Culpa, Malcolm Nance, to help me break down the investigation into the January 6th storming of the Capitol and the right-wing domestic terror threat. If you remember back to our first conversation... Nance eerily predicted much of the events that happened. He is the best-selling author of The Plot to Betray America, which details how Donald Trump embraced our enemies and made us vulnerable to attacks both foreign and domestic. In addition, Nance is an Arabic-speaking, former naval intelligence counter-terrorism officer specializing in the Middle East, as well as a combat veteran and survival, evasion, resistance, and escape expert. He spent 35 years participating in field and combat intelligence activity, including both covert and clandestine anti-encounter terrorism support to national intelligence agencies. A frequent guest on both NBC and MSNBC, he has been labeled one of the unsung national security geniuses of our time. When this guy speaks, I listen. And what he has to say about what's happening in this moment, you need to hear. So let's listen now to that conversation. In a March 16th Washington Post piece that you retweeted, the Post describes how the Army initially pushed to reject the D.C. government's request for a modest National Guard presence ahead of the January 6th rally that ultimately led to the Capitol riot, underscoring the deep reluctance of some higher-ups at the Pentagon, to involve the military in security arrangements that day. Now, can you discuss with me, Malcolm, what went wrong at the Pentagon level in terms of security that day? And in your opinion, was it more of a reluctance about what happened over the summer with the Black Lives Matter protests? Or was there a more intrinsic political aspect driven by Trump appointees? That's a good question. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take one degree back from that because it's very easy to discuss the Pentagon 
and to, you know, look at that within a narrow slice of how the national security apparatus operated that day. Let's take a look at it as a systemic failure. And I'm not even sure if failure is the right word because it gets to the, the premise of your question, but that the entire national security apparatus from the White House down, right down to Capitol Hill police, thought that the 40,000, 50,000 people that were going to be on the National Mall were going to be this large, benign kumbaya setting in which no one needed to do anything. And in fact, you know, uh, Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson's comments two days ago, where he actually said, well, we thought that they were nice, police-loving, law-abiding citizens. And But if it was Black Lives Matter or Antifa, I would have been concerned for my life. That, in a nutshell, encap- encapsulates the entire perspective of the United States government as run by the Trump administration about Trump, Trump's protesters and supporters at that rally. So, in fact, I had been monitoring their own communications, their own websites, their own Twitter feeds, their Telegram, their parlor chats. And as early as the 15th of December, they were using the phrase stop the steal, march on the Capitol. And then as it built up after Christmas, the phrase storming the hill was one of their 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 bywords uh, of the of the supporters of the Trump campaign. And Trump himself came out and said, I want you there on 6th January, right? It's going to be a wild time. He was building up their expectations. Now, that's the, the context of this operation. All of these people who have been told the big lie that this was all theft. The government was literally stolen from them, and it was now time to take action for that. Now, step back and you go, it's almost like you could suddenly stop and put on Muzak in an elevator with the song, The Girl from Ipanema playing. <laughs> and this, this is now the offices of the Pentagon, <laughs> right? And they're like, hey, there's going to be a, they're, they're talking about a march. Uh, all these pro-Trump people are going to come out here. Yeah, they're going to all support the president. Starting with Mark Meadows at the White House, working its way down the National Security Council staff, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, um, Capitol Hill police themselves, and the Pentagon. They just thought it was going to be a, a, a big pro-Trump party, just like all the other rallies that they had. And the reason that they, they literally disarmed themselves was a factor we try not to take into consideration in intelligence. We don't look at your demographics. We look at your potential for violence. And so I've got to look, you know, when I'm targeting someone, right, you know, a a group, whether it's Hutu rebels or ISIS or Al-Qaeda, I'm going to look at what is your potential for getting out of hand? Well, we're going to do what I do, which is we're going to monitor your communications. We're going to watch your, you know, what you're saying. And if you have thousands of people going, we're going to storm that Capitol, bring your body armor, bring pepper spray, bring flags like in Charlottesville. I've got the Proud Boys. I've got three percenters. I've got Oath Keepers, a wide disparate group of people, all of whom are are, are saying that they're coming to take America back, right? I would have to look at that and say, I think we have a threat on our hands. 
And we should be prepared for that. The Pentagon, DHS, White House, Capitol Hill police, they all said, no, these are white Trump voters. They love the country. They respect the police. We don't have to take any precautions. What are they going to do? Come here and wave American flags. That is literally disarming yourself, which means <laughs> it's like going to, it's like when Dick Cheney said they're going to, you know, we invaded Iraq and they're going to treat us as liberators. You know, have you ever been to Iraq? <laughs> I mean, they don't, they, don't, they don't particularly like us. Same thing in that crescendo of hatred that was building up to January 6th. I had six researchers on that day to monitor their own video live streams to watch their behaviors. And I saw the first group break away and storm the Western stairs of, of, of the Capitol. And then it got out of hand. It just went insane. How every person who was in the chain of command at the Pentagon, who was part of this decision-making matrix, needs to be fired. They, have, they, they literally disarmed the country at a time that the threat was an insider threat. Well, it's true. And this week, the Department of Justice asked for more time in preparing its sprawling case against the January 6th rioters. And, you know, it was 300 and 500. The interesting thing in one of the earlier podcasts, we spoke uh, about the ex-wives providing information <laughs> on their ex-husbands uh, to Justice Department uh, as in terms of uh, incarcerating, or I should say bringing to justice these January 6th rioters. But they're looking to prove a conspiracy case, which, of course, as you know, requires a much higher burden of proof. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack the investigation for my listeners in terms of who the FBI and DOJ is focusing on to prove the conspiracy charge? Yeah, that, that's good. Actually, my buddy Frank Fagluzzi at MSNBC, the ex-FBI counter. Frank is the Frank was Frank was on the podcast. Frank is a genius. He is. I got to get him back on also because the things that come out of his mouth are enlightening. Very much I, like I you. know. You know. Go ahead, these, Malcolm. I'm sorry. These bureau guys, you know, they know what they're doing, and half the time, the, the thing about the bureau, they're ducks treading more. You, you, you look at it and it's like, I don't see the FBI doing anything. Then you find out that they had like 100 infiltrators, <laughs> you know. So let's take a look at what's, what they're doing with regards to the Capitol riot, uh, Capitol insurrection. I don't even like using the word rioters. Insurrection is an actual violation of the Constitution, and that's a crime. So look at it this way. The day of the actual attack on the Capitol, it wasn't until about 5.30 to 6 p.m. before the first arrests were made. The attack started at one, about 1.30 in the afternoon. 1.36 is when they breached the building. So uh, the fighting had been going on for some time around the perimeter. There were people who were staged out there. The Proud Boys, they have video of themselves actually out on the northwestern and northeastern side of the Capitol um, preparing for the attack on the building. They didn't go to the rally. They were actually up there knowing there was going to be a siege and a penetration of the building. So as they were starting to arrest people only after the entire operation had dissipated at five in the evening, and most of those 41 people were arrested for breaking the curfew that had been put up after the, the riot. So how do we get all these arrests? How do we come to several hundred people uh, being arrested, indicted, and now, you know, maybe as many 
as a thousand will eventually be investigated and arrested because the FBI kicked it into high gear, suddenly realized that this was a broader operation than just individuals going wild like, you know, the Phillies or, you know, or, or, or the Patriots had won. Right. And, and, and I, I actually say this from time to time on air, you know, um, there's civil disobedience is not against the law. Rioting is barely against the law. Insurrection is clearly a violation of the Constitution because we had insurrection before. It's called the Civil War. Right. And that's why I like to term these people what they are. They were insurrectionists. And they came with one goal, one goal that night, Mike, and, and you of all people would appreciate this. They came to establish a dictatorship. They came to stop democracy in its tracks and elevate Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States Constitution be damned. So the FBI now has all these people in there. There's thousands of streams of videos that are going out there. They can now use the resources of National Joint Terrorism Task Force, and they can start building up two types of case. Violations cases, which are misdemeanors and basic felonies of going into the Capitol, going into a restricted uh, area, trying to stop a democratic process. But more importantly, it's the secondary component of this. How many of these people spoke to each other about doing this beforehand? That means there was pre-organization. There was pre, uh, pre-coordination in this operation. And like I said, this was so well known, you could buy T-shirts on Etsy. That said, isn't that crazy? I'll tell you something. Here's here. It's, it, it, it blows me away because I saw that as well. With the tax deadline approaching, it's important to take steps to avoid being a victim of tax scams. Cyber criminals have used social security numbers to file fake returns in an attempt to steal refunds. File early and be aware of suspicious activities related to your return. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. I've been using LifeLock for a while, and it has given me peace of mind from prying eyes. Here are some of the features. Device security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. Sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. But what really bothers me the most about this is the fact that if, in fact, Joe Biden did not bring in somebody like Merrick Garland to run the Justice Department, and we had somebody in there like Bill Barr, this investigation would never be going forward. Now, of course, that would have meant that Donald Trump won the election. I'm putting that to the side. What I'm talking about is the fact that Donald J. Trump single-handedly destroyed 
the Department of Justice and the FBI during his tenure as president of the United States. How many times did Donald Trump demonize and denigrate the FBI? He did it certainly when they raided my home and I turned around and I put out a response. And this is at a time that I was still, we'll call it close with the ex-former president. And I turned around and said, it's not true. First and foremost, they didn't kick the door down. They knocked on the door. And they said to me, we're here. We have a warrant. I said, sure, come on in. Can I make you a coffee? And they were incredibly professional. They were, they were, they were, honestly, they were very decent in terms of how they treated me and my family. We could come and go as we wished, right? So I refuse to allow Donald Trump to denigrate people that keep us safe each and every day because most people don't realize that we are constantly under attack, not only here by these insurrectionists and other domestic terrorists, right. but by foreign as well. And as far as the DOJ, and look, I get so many people talking about this podcast, and many of them say, oh, we love when you, when you use foul language, when you curse, because with me, it just it just comes out. Blah. I mean, I can't help it. My mom keeps telling me, you know, you were you, you were a foul mouthed kid when you were young, and nobody in my family curses. My dad's a head and neck surgeon. My mom's a surgical nurse. My three siblings are lawyers. None of them curse. I know I got dropped on my head a few times as a kid, but I don't know what it is. It just it comes out, and it doesn't come out simply for the sake of it. It's just. It's just how I feel when I get into it. And I'm so, I'm going to try so hard not to use the language. I'm going to try to see how well the podcast <laughs> goes, right? How long I can go without saying what I really want to say. But I'm, I am, I'm so disgusted with Trump for just, for so many things. But this specifically, he weaponized our Justice Department to go against people like myself and others. Right. Who he didn't like. Reality winner. As another example, I talk about her on my Twitter feed all the time. This is somebody who went ahead and tried to save democracy by outing the Russian interference. And where is she? Incarcerated. It's wrong. I hope Merrick Garland does something about it. Myself fighting with the BOP and the DOJ and the prosecutors and the judge in the case. It's all one big, just disgusting grift following our for, you know our former grifter in chief right. and it's just absolutely disgraceful but another person who appears to have shown his ugly uh, i just i almost blurted out the f word right roger stone i'm getting right? to him you know, <laughs> i i so roger stone seems to be in the sights of the federal investigators for his role in the january 6th riot can you unpack for me, and especially for my listeners, what you believe the case is to be made against Roger in terms of his connection to the riots and the Oath Keepers? I mean, Roger has always been a weirdo, right? right? From his days walking down, you know, the um, the gay pride parade with his assless chaps. Uh, and it's one thing to support, but I mean, to walk down with your wife and with a girlfriend with assless chaps, to me, is just another thing. But secondly... What can you tell us about Ali Alexander, who alternatively claims to have started Stop the Steal and then to have nothing to do with it at all? Yeah. Is he Stone's deputy in this madness? Yeah. What's the deal here? You know, one of the favorite components of discussing 
uh, potential conspiracy in the entire Capitol uh, insurrection is the very fact that when Roger Stone is bought up, I don't think, oh, my God, Roger Stone, you know, was going to go to jail, got a pardon. I think this Roger Stone has committed new and fresh crimes in which the pardon does not cover him (laughs) because everything we're talking about was after he received his pardon. Roger Stone is being looked at, not just with the Oath Keepers. You have to remember, Roger Stone is a great favorite of the Proud Boys. In fact, you could say that he's one of the founding fathers or the OG believers in that white male misogynistic, let's get in people's faces and, you know, confront the libs everywhere that we have. Proud Boys love Roger Stone. And early on, they were his earliest bodyguards. But on the Capitol, on the Stop the Steal rally, if you want to call it that, or the March for Trump, as it was officially called, um, the Oath Keepers, which is a bizarre group formed by a former Marine named Stuart Rhodes, big fat guy, um, whose original mandate came that they were supposedly U.S. military and law enforcement people who were not going to um, support any military operation in the United States that used the army against its own people. That was the original mandate of the Oath Keepers, keep your oath. And you might recall that that came about at the time that U.S. special operations were doing exercises in the United States called Jade Hell, right? About, you know, 10 years or so ago. And so Stuart Rhodes shifted that organization into a right-wing militia. And the my favorite part of the whole Oath Keeper story is he was one of the first people demanding Donald Trump use the army to occupy the United States, implement martial law, and take over the government. Literally, what he said, he built the Oath Keepers to stand against, right? Okay, they turned out on the, on the rally of March 6th to have been providing security for Roger Stone. That's what they say. Um, yes, they did. And in fact, many of the people who have already been indicted and who are being investigated on the conspiracy have noted that not only was Roger Stone with the Oath Keepers, Roger Stone may have been in communication with the Proud Boys as well, may have had pre-knowledge um, or foreknowledge that there was going to be a major attack. And it remains to be seen whether he was actually one of the people that helped engineer the philosophy of taking the building. We don't know that yet. Now, what the FBI has done is they literally have taken apart every person that was around him on the day of that rally. Several of them were ex-law enforcement officers. Some There's, there's rumor that they may have had uh, people who were uh, cops who were off-duty who were carrying firearms. <clears throat> so Roger Stone was there. Then you had the people who were part of the Ohio conspiracy, Oath Keepers, um, who uh, were there right next to him, who were escorting him in various places. So as Roger Stone filters up in this story, I suspect the Department of Justice, uh, as Merrick Garland said in his testimony while he was being um, uh, while he was being ratified by the Senate, is that they are looking to find out who the ideologues at the top who got these people to believe that they could actually dismantle democracy that day. And trust me, I suspect Roger Stone, like Roger Stone is in all operations, 
is going to be a middle-level player, right? Because there's always one step above Roger Stone. And as you know... Malcolm, but let's not forget how close we actually came to them pulling off the dismantling of our democracy. Absolutely. It's something that's not really talked about long enough. You see, you brought it up in terms of the timeline, because that's what you are, right? You're a timeline kind of a guy. One o'clock, one o'clock, the insurrection began. And it wasn't until after 4.30 was the first arrest. You realize how much damage can take place in three and a half hours when you are out, when you basically outnumber law enforcement that was in there, not to mention five or six of them were injured and severely, one death. And had they been more organized or more persistent, they could have easily found the individuals who were hiding. They could have easily found our government representatives. And by the way, they need now to understand when when they recall the fear that they had in their stomachs and in their hearts, knowing that these people were outside the doors and they were in hiding. They should think about people like myself that deal with that sort of PTSD issue every single day. Because don't think for a second that Donald Trump's people aren't still out there. They're not still crazy. I don't have the protection that they do. And that's why they should be doing much more than what they're doing than sitting there trying to get their five minutes of television, right? Um, You know, their television time. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked here. But, yeah. you know, let me take you to the next guy. With the arrest of our dear friend, Frederico Klein, right, for his role in the January 6th riot, the investigation now enters the administration itself. What are you hearing from your sources about Klein? And do you expect that there to be more links to the former Trump administration as the investigation continues? And I ask this question Mm -hmm. again because I know Donald Trump better than anybody. I, I know him better than anybody. And I can tell you emphatically that Roger Stone definitely played a role in terms of getting the people incited. There's no doubt about it. We've seen it on video. And Donald Trump approved of it. I'll tell you another person who did the same thing. Donald Trump Jr. Right. 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 Did the exact same thing, rioting people up. And then, of course, there's our moronic former mayor, Rudy Giuliani. The same thing. These people were willing to throw our democracy into the dumpster simply for what? A handful of applause without fully recognizing the simple fact that not one person there was there to see Roger Stone. Not one person was there to see Rudy Giuliani. Not one person was there to see Don Trump Jr., right? They were there for the father. Right. They were there for the, for, right, for the guru himself or the cult leader for Donald Trump. Everybody else was replaceable by John, Tom, Mary, Bob, whoever it might be, right? It didn't make a difference. All you had to do is mention Trump's name with the insurrection and storming the Capitol and, you know, and taking over and you were going to get the same ridiculous applause. Right. So please walk me yeah. through this when it comes to Frederico. Well, you know what you're, you, you, we have, he's the first person in the administration who's a State Department employee who uh, actually came out there while employed by the United States government and took part in this insurrection. But he's not the one I'm focused on. 
The person I'm focused on is the congressional staffer who was on top of the Capitol taking video of the rioting, right? Live streaming it and cheering on the attack. The real conspiracy that's being investigated right now that's going to send people to prison are was there coordination between some of these groups and their elected representatives who were actually in the Capitol? And did they coordinate or pass intelligence out to the rioters in an effort to get those people uh, targeted or have them attacked? That's the real question that's going on in our world about the conspiracy on the attack on the Capitol. Was there an insider threat? Let me tell you something. I've been, I've watched hundreds of hours of their footage real time while it was happening. I'm writing a new book uh, on, it's not on the Capitol attack. I started this book last August on the coming Trump insurgency. You know what the name of the title of the book is? It's called They Want to Kill Americans. That's the title of the book. It's about Americans that are organizing for Trump as an act of paramilitary. And, you know, I was, I'm 80% of the book was done until January. And I said, let me see what happens between December and January. <laughs> I have to. Malcolm, let me jump onto your idea for a second mm-hmm. here because now I find that to be intriguing. There's somebody there that's live streaming video right. in a high position. Right. What do they call that in the in the military? You have elevated the, terrain. You have the elevated terrain. Mm-hmm. And what's the purpose of having the elevated terrain while you're live streaming so that you can show the rioters whether or not the troops are coming in, whether police are coming in. In that way, you can guide them to certain areas that aren't fortified. That's a possibility that this, you know, and it's part of the conspiracy that I think should be investigated. Was there any command and control going on from insiders? Right. There's allegations that uh, maybe one, possibly two uh, congressional members may have been in communication with the leaders of the attack and may have been reporting the position of Democratic leadership. The reason that I bring this this particular aspect up is because hark back to November when they did the indictments out of Michigan on the kidnapping plot to kill Governor Gretchen Whitmer. They were going to go to her home. They were going to kill the state police. They were going to kidnap her, take her to Wisconsin, put her on trial, and live stream her execution. That was plan A. But a little known factor was plan B, and it's in the indictment against the uh, six conspirators. Their plan B was to organize 200 armed militiamen, storm the Michigan State Capitol while the assembly was in order, and then take all of the people inside hostage, release all the Republicans in law enforcement, then start having trials and summary executions of all the Democrats and liberals in the Michigan State House. That plot was broken in November, was brought to public light in November. It should have been the baseline for security of the Capitol. That's this. Malcolm, that, that, just so you know, that line, comes right out of the movie The Dark Knight, right, when they take over Gotham and they start holding trials oh, yeah. inside and based upon what your what your role was, guilty, and they made you go walk on the ice, 
Right, right, so right. They, they made you, and the ice. It's the same that. thing. I mean, these people. So uh, yeah, I didn't forget that one. And it reminded me when I had heard you saying that once before on television. I was saying they just stole that right out of the Dark Knight. Now, one of the questions on my mind is what's lurking out there for the next attack, mm. because I don't believe anything is a one and done. Now, many of the larger groups, like the Oath Keepers and or the Proud Boys, have been smashed to bits in this investigation. And the militia and the extremist movements have been atomized with scores of smaller actors, which in a way makes them even harder to track. Now, since you were right about January 6th in terms of predicting much of what happened, what else do you think is lurking on the horizon? Because my feeling is that these people are not gone and they're even more angry than before. Yeah, you know, and I mentioned this when I was on the Bill Maher show on November 6th, which was three days after the election. Uh, you know, he was, Bill was doing all this kumbaya. And I said, well, it's time for me to bring in the gloom and gloom. But I, I predict that we are entering a phase of an American insurgency. I, I call it the Titus, T-I-T-U-S, the Trump insurgency in the United States. And a first phase of all insurgencies are not terrorist attacks. It's a political uprising where you determine that a, a representative government has to be delegitimized and brought down to its basic elements to show the nation you can't trust it. And so I had been waiting actually through December to see what Trump himself would say. And the big lie formed and that created the basis of phase one of insurgency as we have it written in our counterinsurgency handbooks, right? But next comes what had been building actually since Charlottesville and had formalized in the summer of 2020, that all of these groups went from being the alt-right. We don't even use the phrase alt-right anymore about these guys, the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, Boogaloo Boys, Militias. By summer of 2020, Mike, they had become the unofficial armed paramilitary of the Trump campaign. And what happened wow. in January 6th was the unarmed version of how they flex power. What's going to come next, it's not going to be the people who were cowed by this. And I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying immediately, one of the first things we need to do to delegitimize them is stop calling them protesters, never allow them to call themselves patriots. You have to call them insurrectionists, insurgents, traitors, whatever you want to call them, but you have to shame them. To a certain extent, and that will peel off a group. But how do you find the, the true believers? You can't. I want to point something out. When, in 1996, we had ended a 10-year campaign, almost a 15-year campaign, of the FBI infiltrating major militia groups throughout the 1980s all over the country. They had broken up groups most people have never heard of. The Order, the Covenants, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, the Christian Brotherhood. Christian identity movement. All of these groups have been infiltrated and broken up by, by the FBI. But still, in 1995, Timothy McVeigh and two other co-conspirators built the largest bomb ever in American history and killed 186 American citizens. No matter how good your efforts are, there is always going to be a clandestine underground that will not be on the radar. McVeigh was on the radar. He was at Waco. They interviewed him for television. He was an ex-U.S. Army soldier. Right. So, look, when we last spoke, 
It was the Boogaloo boys that you just mentioned and the threat that they potentially posed that had many people like myself alarmed. But truthfully, in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, their presence really seems to have largely vanished, right? Now, were they ultimately more of a media creation than a real entity, or do they still exist and continue to pose a danger or are they just biding their time? I want to point something very interesting that you'll, you'll find fascinating since you know the guy. You know, Steve Bannon created technically the alt-right in the United States by, you know, you know, he was a gamer guy, right? And he, he made his millions using Chinese workers to earn points in computer gaming world and then selling them to young white kids in the United States for big money. That's how he earned his his base money. But one of the things he also did was he also learned to radicalize young white men gamers. And the scandal of Gamergate, you might recall that back, you know, about 10 years or so ago, where, you know, white guys were attacking women who were in the gaming industry, right? Just vicious, brutally attacking these women for their mere presence of being there. These men grew up to be the alt-right. Bannon had managed to create an entire block where in the gamer world, he had injected conservatism, this sort of crazy conservatism. I say that the Boogaloo boys, who are pretty young, most of them are under the age of 25. The Boogaloo boys are a manifestation of Call of Duty cosplay, right? Costume players who've gotten rifles when they turned 18 and have all become armed live action role players who now believe this Bannon-like, you know, Leninist philosophy of tear the system down. These guys are going to be the next wave of trouble. I suspect right now they're doing what everybody has done. They've taken off their costumes. They take off their shirts. They took their body armor off. They've been identified. They're laying low. But these guys believe in a, in a philosophy called accelerationism tearing down American democracy for a white supremacy homeworld. So I suspect there may be an, a, a second wave where maybe they don't use the phrase Boogaloo. Maybe they stop calling themselves Proud Boys. The Boogaloos are like young Proud Boys who haven't joined that group yet, right? And the Proud Boys have been designated a terrorist group by Canada, our, our closest ally. But these are the same young guys who go into mosques and massacre people 50 at a time, like in New Zealand or in Quebec or in Poway, California or, or in El Paso, Texas. These guys have their own mental defects, but they also are a form of incel, right? Involuntary celibate. Those guys who are anti-misogynists. Interesting note. Did you know Timothy McVeigh may have been the first incel terrorist in the United States? He never in his entire military history had any documented relationships with women. Now, I was in the military. That's almost impossible. Timothy McVeigh mass murdered 186 people on that, and he hadn't even reached the age of 28. So these young guys could be ticking time bombs in the American system. Well, thank God for Steve Bannon. Maybe maybe as a as a gift to Steve Bannon, who I despise with a with a passion. Um, maybe they'll call themselves, instead of the Boogaloo Boys, they'll call themselves the Bannoners, right? And they'll put his ugly fucking mug on their shirts. I'm sorry. I know. I promised that wasn't. But I can't fucking, I can't fucking stand him. I mean, it's like that, that 
scumbag and a half. I owe you a buck. Meanwhile, let's move on to something that we actually, I'm sorry to the people who are asking me not to. It's just, it, it, he just, the thought of his face just makes me want to throw up. Now, we talked about the next asshole in the, this Ron Johnson. Uh. I mean, seriously, is there, he's just a piece of shit. Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin has been one of the primary sources of January 6th denialism, where he and others in this right-wing circle continue to push these fake narratives about um, the storming of the Capitol and the threat of white uh, wing extremist terror in general. And what pisses me off is that he seeks to blame, this is the greatest, he seeks to blame Antifa and Black Lives Matter protests for both the riots and the true domestic terror threat. Now, to me, it's an obvious and a shameful racist dog whistle aimed at whitewashing one-sixth and shifting the blame onto black America. Now, in response, Johnson said the following. Yeah, fucking asshole, right? And they say, I say in quote, there was nothing racial about my comments, nothing whatsoever. Ron Johnson tells reporters defending his comments about being more concerned about Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters than these pro-Trump demonstrators on January 6th, something we were talking about before. Now, he calls his comments, in quotes, innocuous. Can you further unpack for me what Johnson is doing from a political standpoint and then address his comments themselves for their intent? Do you believe that they were racist? Let me start with that question, and I'm going to give you my answer before you say yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they were fucking racist to the core. Yeah. yeah, of course. Of course they were racist. And there's, Can we stop using the phrase dog whistle? You can't hear a dog whistle. I heard the man. These are, these are foghorns that they're using now. He wants people to hear it. You know, let me tell you about Ron Johnson, because, you know, I, I saw an interview by Soledad O'Brien who said she's interviewed him many times. And she said he's actually a very intelligent man. He's a very thoughtful man. And up until recently, she, she had respect for him. But then suddenly now he's going on and on as this idiot. And, and let me make a pop culture reference for you. I remember when, when Ron Johnson made that comment, it brought to mind Mel Brooks in Blazing Saddles, who plays oh, the governor, my, my favorite. right? Governor uh-huh. the Tomain, right? <laughs> and he he's a moron who goes, work, 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 right? And they say, you know, if they find us out, we're going to lose our phony baloney jobs. There it is. That is the doctrine that Ron Johnson works under, right? <laughs> and he's not playing paddle ball and Googling boobs. He is, wait, he is trying not to lose his phony baloney job. And what he did was he spoke strictly to white people. And it's it's harkens back to when politicians like, you know, back in the 1920s, like Woodrow Wilson, where you had to be a Klan member to be respected in the community. And so I would expect him to say something as ridiculous as that. But I'm sorry. What he said was racist. He is a racist. He's a racist because he wanted to say that. We thought that they were peaceful protesters who love America and the police, dot, 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 in parentheses, white, all right, and not those Black Lives Matter Antifa people. He doesn't care about speaking to the other 60% of America. He is still speaking to the racist 40% that will keep him in his phony baloney job. 
Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, he's more like Mongo than the mayor. All right, you know, he's hey, a fucking asshole! I can't stand Mongo it, was a right? pawn now, okay. in the circle of life, right? <laughs> Not this. Guy. Yeah, and he, and he's a pawn, and he's a pawn too. He's a pawn to Donald Trump's ongoing, continuous racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic rhetoric that he is just so good at hiding. Right? He masks it, and yet. Somebody who obviously has half a brain or maybe a quarter is willing to give up himself and, and to and to destroy his own life with this crazy racist ranting nonsense. And then he gets me all agitated. Now I'm going to have to step away to go take my blood pressure medicine because I'm all fucking excited. And I don't I was trying to really be calm. All right. I had my my cup of coffee before I got myself all going. And now the. Now this gets me. It's my fault because it was my question. But I'm going to move on for a quick second and say to you, the FBI recently arrested two men, Julian Cater and George Tanios, in connection with the death of Capitol Police Officer, God rest his soul, Brian Sicknick. But they still have yet to charge them. What can you tell my listeners about this investigation and these two men in particular? Because I know your sources have discussed this. Right. Um. These two guys came from two highly disparate places. They weren't even, uh, I believe one guy's from Kansas, the other guy's from West Virginia. Uh, I might be wrong about that. But more importantly, they were caught on his body camera and the body camera footage of the officer next to them. And I remember the first moment where on the Western Steps, very early on in the riot, where where I saw bear spray. That's the orange, highly pressurized stuff, not pepper spray, not little stuff being used. And I thought, holy cow, the park police allowed bear spray to be bought out. And then I saw guys getting into body armor and combat helmets and riot gear and bringing out axes. We identified in one of my photo identification groups, we identified guys with pistols, right? One guy had a Sig P320 pistol on his hip. And he was too young to be a cop. So there were armed people in that crowd, too. Officer Sicknick was, you know, the funny thing is, I, I this new book that I'm writing, the first words of the book are, office, uh, are, the, are the words of Officer Mike Fanone, who was near where Sicknick was. And the first words that he remembers when he was being mobbed by this crowd was, let's kill him with his own gun. That's what he remembers hearing. And they were grabbing his pistol. They had taken his pepper spray and his ammunition. They used his own stun gun on him. Officer Sicknick, we don't know his cause of death yet. And I think the reason that the Bureau is not releasing his cause of death is because when you bring yourself up to a murder charge, which is where they're going with this, they're going to want every person who ever touched him, his body. And it's probably a lot more than two people. Now, they've identified these two guys. They brought him up on, you know, they, they, they're, uh, you know, on charges of assault, uh, the regular roster of charges, but they're tying this conspiracy together. Let me tell you something. Those two guys knew each other. That's why they've been brought together on a conspiracy charge. They had been communicating with each other by telephone, which means that they had organized their violence at that time. One of them got pepper sprayed, went off, and I believe 15 minutes later, according to the indictment, the uh, guy who, um, who pepper sprayed Sicknick went, uh, called the other guy. So they have evidence. They have lots of evidence. But the body cameras of several officers caught them. 
They're probably also still reviewing hundreds of footage from themselves. These guys may have had body, may have had camera footage. They're going to want an airtight murder case on this. There's rumors. Let me tell you, the big thing in right-wing talking point world right now, Mike, is they're saying Sicknick wasn't killed by a fire extinguisher. Well, we don't know that. He might have been struck in the head by a fire extinguisher, pepper sprayed, caused respiratory arrest, and died from a you know an embolism or something. It could be several factors. Believe me, when the FBI does an investigation on this level, they are going to have the cause of death down to a micron of what actually killed him. So I suspect that they're probably looking at seven or eight more people who are going to be brought up, and then they will all be collectively brought up on charges of murder. Good. With a COVID vaccine bringing safety to millions, it seems like there is light at the end of the tunnel as well as a return to normal life. With all this in mind, why not take this moment to get your life in order by protecting your family with life insurance? Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers in one place and save 50% or more. Once you find your best option, the Policy Genius team will set up your new policy for you and answer any questions you have along the way. Here's how you can get started. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare policies from as little as $15 a month. You might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. Since their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance companies, there's zero hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius will take care of everything. It's that kind of service that has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. The best part? All the benefits of Policy Genius, the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice, they're totally free to use. So while you're tidying up around the house this spring, why not get your life insurance organized too? You can save 50% or more by comparing quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. Go to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Well, let me then change gears for a quick second and bring you to the second tape of former President Trump pressuring Georgia election officials was recently released by the Wall Street Journal. Now, in it, (laughs) I mean, you can't make this shit up. In it, Trump can be heard urging Georgia election investigator Francis Watson to look for Freud. (laughs) I I mean, you know, you just have to you have to just sort of laugh at the whole thing. Right. He's urging Georgia election investigator right to go look for this fraud. And it seems to create what prosecutors will call a pattern of criminality when connected with the first tape with Brad Raffensperger. Now, What are you hearing from your sources in terms of the likelihood of a Trump indictment in Fulton County, uh, Fulton County? And further, what role did Mark Meadows play in all of this as Trump is heard using his name and seemingly throwing him under the bus for his role in all of this? Now, what's interesting is I've always found this. Everything that I told people when I stood up before the House Oversight Committee, and people think that that was the one congressional hearing that I did, 
I spoke with nine different congressional committees and law enforcement um, organ groups, right, for over 300 hours. And it's still continuing. And I'm still going to be speaking again with the DA for the eighth time. So when I turn around and tell you that Donald Trump is sick in his head and that Donald Trump will throw Mark Meadows, who I warned, I personally warned Mark Meadows during my House Oversight Committee testimony that I know the game that you're playing and I know the game, uh, the playbook, because I wrote it and he will do to you what he did to me. Right. Lo and behold, voila, asshole. Here it is. Right. You know, enjoy the show. So tell me if you can unpack this whole crap for me, please. You want to talk about a guy who's on 80 milligrams of lisinopril, right? That is, that's Mark Meadows. He's taking his high blood pressure medicine. He might be on 120 at this point. Let me tell you, that guy is in trouble for two reasons. Not just because Fulton County DA, who is an African-American woman, all right, is the lead investigator on this because every other person in the entire chain of command of the state of Georgia are witnesses to these crimes. And most interestingly is the fact that because of 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 uh of Lindsey Graham's telephone call to the state of South to Raffensburger and South Carolina all state officials started recording their calls and this is how we have another call from Donald Trump interesting to note uh the only reason we have this call is because someone did a freedom of information request on it so how many other calls are out there that were recorded at this point so um, I suspect that Georgia itself, uh, this is one of those circumstances where the governor, Governor Kemp, can't do anything about what could happen here. It may, in fact, if um, there are more recordings come out, we don't know whether they, you know, they're going to get to the point where they can impanel a grand jury and maybe we learn about two calls and they've got 35 calls, you know, recorded. We don't know. But- finally, finally, now that we have a adult in the White House, right, who put another adult uh, like Merrick Garland right. and that, to run the DOJ, maybe they will get this FOIA office under control. And I can tell you, I am frustrated, beyond frustrated with FOIA. I put in a FOIA request over five months ago for records dealing with the illegal remand of me by Trump and Barr right. back to prison. <clears throat> Right. Violating my constitutional rights. I put in a FOIA request. And because of the nature of it, the judge determined that it's supposed to get expedited attention. Well, five months passed. And I finally, just two days or three days ago, I got the 58 pages from the BOP FOIA office. And not one of those pages has anything to do with my FOIA request. They should have sent me, they should have sent me, you know, uh, to Wendy's or something, a, a menu, because it was absolutely, it had nothing to do with anything. Everything they gave to me was complete garbage. And finally, what my hope is that, you know, Merrick Garland will force, as will, you know, our president, you know, Biden and Kamala Harris, that they will force better and more transparent FOIA, because the American people have a right to know. They have a right to know. Easiest thing he could do is just say, Transparency job one now. Everything that was blocked, we're gonna we're gonna let it out. This Justice Department is not a tool of the of the White House. We're not the Bill Barr legacy is gonna be scrubbed clean, right? Because Barr was let me tell you, there's another guy. There's another guy who better get his his ducks in a row because he should have got he should have got his pardon while he was there. But he's so arrogant to think 
that he did nothing wrong. We have sent attorney generals to prison after they were out of office, hence Nixon. So uh, Bill Barr has got a lot to answer for. And I suspect, let me tell you, Mike, if there's anything that you should really feel good about, remember how they fired all the inspector generals around the United States government, right? All the watchdogs. I do. Yeah, they've all been reappointed with new people. And these people are going to start having, you know, dump truck loads of complaints dropped on their desk from the Trump era. You know, everybody made money there. You know, everybody committed ethics violations left and right. And I suspect someone in the Justice Department is going to go, I need to see Judge Garland because uh, the attorney general did X. And we're going to find out. I, I hope I hope that you're right. And I'm certain that you're probably right. But I'll feel much better about all of this when my true story comes sure. out about what maybe the judge did in my specific case um, and others, including what's going on right now with my habeas corpus with the BOP. It's about time now that Merrick Garland finally is in there. You got to get rid of this guy, this director, Michael Carvajal. Mm -hmm. He's worthless. He's done nothing. Every, all the nonsense about Donald Trump with prison reform and so on. Right. It's all a, it's all a lie. It's a big con, just like Trump. And it's about time that we finally re-energize the country by putting proper people in that care more about the country and their job than lining their pockets, as you just said. Now, the Washington Post is reporting that on Monday, a Capitol Police officer was suspended after a copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is, I'm sure you know, it's the infamous anti-Semitic tract, was found Sunday at um, a Longworth building checkpoint. What do you know about the incident at hand? And what do you think it says about the larger systemic problem of extremist infiltration of law enforcement into, in, into our core, into the core of our government? Here's what I suspect that officer is going to say. Oh, I was taking a history of terrorism course and I wanted to read more deeply into it. Wrong. Okay. The Protocols of Elders of Zion is, 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 it's almost the document that created the Holocaust. It was uh, written in, I believe, in the late 1800s, republished in 1905 in Russia. It is a forged, fraudulent document that claims that a cabal of Jews uh, is leading the financial industry around the world and to uh, maintain themselves, drink the blood of Christian children, right? Adolf Hitler pushed the protocols of the elders of Zion anywhere. You're reading that, and you're not using it as part of an AP, you know, graduate degree studies program. It should not be in the United States Capitol. It is a sign of your mindset. And your mindset is, I am so proud of what I'm doing. I'm just... A I'm just amazed Mikey didn't have a copy of the Turner Diaries, which is the book that Timothy McVeigh had. Or better than that, Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf, yeah. Ends. It's insane. First off, it's an insult to everyone who is Jewish. Boom, right? I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I'm insulted that someone would print it out, bind it, and bring it anywhere in public. Right? It's ridiculous. Yeah, listen, it, it is ridiculous. Now, on March 14th in the Sunday New York Times... They wrote a story about how the FBI completely dropped the ball on the Proud Boys, yeah. underestimating them as mere street brawlers and ignoring the much larger clues that this group was being weaponized by others and truly growing out of control. Can you do me a favor and explain to my listeners how the FBI could miss something like this? Because 
I have nothing but the utmost of respect for the FBI. Right. I really, I truly do, um, despite all the nonsense that happened to me. How the hell did they miss this one? Yeah, you know, and I find it almost amazing because the Proud Boys had been on my radar since just when they really formed, Gavin McGinnis formed them in, in their first major action in New York City in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2019, where they were literally fighting every liberal that they could find, street brawlers, right? I mean, these guys, you know, this is it, what, what I find fascinating is as a counterterrorism expert, almost all of the ISIS members who came from Europe and the United States started out as petty criminals and street brawlers. Almost all of them. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Just massive ex-cons, you know, who all decided to go straight and find themselves an ideology. These guys lived to fight. But it was summer of 2020, the first time I saw Proud Boys organizations at rallies with long rifles, right? Which means that they upgraded to becoming a militia themselves, right? They were talking, you know, and when they didn't have long rifles, they had them nearby. They were meeting in Washington, D.C. at this one particular hotel. Their leader, Brendan Tarrio, was actually arrested two days before the Capitol riots with two AK-47 magazines full of ammunition in Washington, D.C. Now, let me let me point something out. He also turned out to have been an informant for the FBI. So maybe he uh, downplayed his reports or maybe that they were overloaded with all these other rising militia groups. Let me tell you something. The heyday of the militias used to be the 1980s. That is over with. It is now. Ammunition prices in the United States. I'm a competitive shooter. Off the charts, Mike. They went from 21 cents a bullet last this time last year to $1.25 for AR-15 ammunition now per bullet, right? These guys think civil war is coming. They are planning for civil war. The Proud Boys, far more organized than they thought. So I'm not sure whether that breakdown was just because organizational exhaustion or whether they uh, had, had underestimated it. I, 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 I find it very hard to believe they underestimated it when all you got to do is watch television and see these guys with AR-15s, whereas a year before they weren't carrying AR-15s. Right. And the question then becomes, if you have an AR-15, what else do you have in your closet? Because nobody has just an AR-15. Yeah. I mean, you know, I used to I used to be one of a thousand people here in New York that was licensed to carry a concealed firearm. Right. Um, outside of law enforcement. And that was something that upset me very much when I lost it, considering the charges. I mean, you know, I've never pulled my firearm. What, it, I, because I paid a porn star, right, to pull the president's pecker <laughs> means that I should end up, right, simply because that's the rules? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. Hi, folks, Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Like check out last Thursday's episode with Stealing History author Roger Atwood, who will tell you how and where to find buried treasure and priceless antiquities. 
I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the January 7th episode with Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, the former DEA agents who took down Pablo Escobar. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our own personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we thank you as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Once I ultimately get my my name back, my honor back, and the truth ultimately comes out, because, you know, I'm writing a second book as well, um, and um, it's going pretty well and things are, are moving, but it is a deep dive analysis into the extent of the case from the steel dossier all the way to the remand back to prison and all of the dirtiness that went on between, you know, the guys on the inside, starting with steel to the FBI, to Comey, to Weissman, all the way straight up to Judge Pauly and his sentence all the way up to thank God for somebody like Judge Hellerstein that basically held Trump and held Bill Barr's hands to the retaliation. It's going to be a real heavy, deep dive. I got a question. I got a question. Have you found a name for your book yet? I have. Oh, no, no. Don't, I have. I'm don't not tell gonna, us, but I'm, I'm going to give gonna you a suggestion right point. now, and you need to change the name to this, right? Rat fucker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the legacy of <laughs> Donald Trump on America. Oh, my God. I would buy that book just for the title. <laughs> well, I'll hold on. Um, don't tell anybody, but I may do it. So let me ask you this question, because we're going to talk about just as we're winding down the hour. I just have two more questions for you here. How much how much evidence is there of coordination before or after the January 6th storming of the Capitol and certain members of the Capitol Police? And I asked this question mm. simply because I was watching television this morning. I think it was MSNBC, and they were talking about the number of Capitol police officers that they believe are being investigated now into having connections to some of these um, insurrectionists. And I just found that to be fascinating because, again, every single Capitol police officer that I met seemed to be upstanding and dignified. Mm -hmm. And yet there appears to be many more that were involved in this insurrection than people believe. Thirty-five is the number of officers that are under investigation right now. And believe me, it is not just an investigation internal. That is just, you know, uh, I'm sure they have their own internal investigators, but somewhere in the background, the FBI is investigating those officers as well, because that is serious. There were breakdowns that we saw. I remember one section of video where I was watching a live stream of the insurrectionists And suddenly doors that were being held back were opened up. A Hispanic officer uh, and a black officer on the left and a white officer on the right stepped back and stood out of the way. My first thought was someone just ordered them to open that doors. And you could tell the look on their face. They did not like it. They did not. They were like, 
I would I was whipping your ass a moment ago and somebody told me to step back. They had their backs against the wall like they were ordered to do that. And I thought something at a higher echelon is happening here. And it could be quite possible that some mid-level officer who had that same Ron Johnson attitude that, you know, this was just a bunch of unruly Iowa high school tours getting out of hand, let them in and they won't do anything. Right. I was the first person that very night who went on air on MSNBC. And I said, somewhere out there, we're going to find out that there was what we call in the terrorist world, a murder cell. These are people who went into the Capitol with the intent to hunt specific individuals. You know, Malcolm, I was just thinking about this. You know what really makes that whole concept sick Mm. is the fact that entering the Capitol the way that they did is a felony. Right. And if, in fact, somebody dies like, you know, like the officer, Sicknick, everybody that's inside there is now subject under the felony murder rule to the same penalty as the person that actually killed him. Really? I mean, there's this. Yeah, they can make this into. I mean, they could make this into a case that you know could see thousands of people charged with the murder of this of this officer. And by the way, I would be just fine to see it because something like that should never have happened, and it definitely should never happen again. And the fact that now we have to have barbed wire fences and so on in front of the Capitol. Come on. That's not who we are as America. But, you know, Malcolm, as we're winding down our hour, Mm -hmm. I have just one final question for you. You recently highlighted a Guardian story, and it actually it confused me and also intrigued me at the same time about Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's push for there to be an investigation into the FBI's background check of Justice Kavanaugh during the 2018 yeah. confirmation. Yes, White House is alleging that the background check itself may have actually been fake. What can you tell me and my listeners about this story and where it end up, where it may end up leading? Yeah, there's a lot of reporting on that today. And I think that everybody should go check it out. Uh, that, in fact, the Bar Justice Department may have literally manufactured an investigation did minimal effort. They said Kavanaugh himself was never interviewed by the FBI. He's the subject of the investigation, and they didn't even think to talk to him to get his version of events. Before you do that, tell my listeners what the investigation is. Yeah, the investigation was about Justice Kavanaugh, the claims by uh, you know a, a woman who alleged that Kavanaugh, at, a, at an earlier time in his life, had raped her, forcibly raped her uh, at a party and that she had several people who knew this contemporarily at the time. And, you know, this was the start of the Me Too movement, that the women must be believed. Uh, and the compromise was that ju- there would be an FBI investigation. If you guys recall from that time, that investigation took like four days. It was No FBI investigation takes that long. None of the people who were witnesses on her side were interviewed. None of them. Uh, they interviewed one or two or three people on Kavanaugh's side. Now we're finding out they didn't even interview him. They didn't even take statements. That's impossible. It could be a Bill Barr special, right? Where they ordered a couple of friendly FBI officers to go over there, shuffle some paper around, give us a piece of paper, and then come back. And, uh, you know, we'll call it a day. He's on the Supreme Court. If this turns out to be true, and that's a big if, 
we'll find out. Well, let me ask you this question. There, if, if in fact that this took place the way that it's being described, there has to be some documentation that went on between individuals. Now, is it possible that there is no documentation? Interestingly enough, going back to that whole FOIA scenario with me, there's not allegedly one single piece of paper between anybody regarding the remand back to prison that time on the retaliation charge. Not one. They say they're telling me now at the FOIA office that it was probably done by a phone call. So how would you turn around and let's use Kavanaugh now if, in fact, that it's not done by paper, that it was done the Donald Trump way, which is by phone, leave no fingerprints behind, right? Um, and people learn very quickly with him. Then what? Yeah, well, first off, there's going to be a lot of paper back there. And what I suspect is now that this thing has become so high profile in the last 24 hours is that this is one of the things Merrick Garland's going to have to really take personally, right? Because now we're talking about the integrity of both the Justice Department and the honor of the FBI. Let's make no mistake, Mike. You know better than I do. Um, there are FBI officers who are very sympathetic to the president, right? But usually, bureau guys are loyal to the bureau, okay? <laughs> Above else, you know, there's, that is, it's like the Secret Service. There's one, you know, there are some organizations where you can have your personal beliefs, but your beliefs have better jive with what the bureau wants. But that doesn't mean that, there, that there's not going to be a paper trail between, what if there's a paper trail between the White House, Congress, the bureau, and the Justice Department in coordinating a lack of findings, right? Or a finding favorable well, to Kavanaugh. Would, huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then that would be talking. something, because by the way, it's not just, by the way, Malcolm, it's not just, um, you know, the, what do you call it, the DOJ right. that has the black mark. It's the Supreme Court of the United well, States. We, well, I mean, yeah, well, the question is, what do you do if you find that a Supreme Court justice had lied, had actually, or not lied, but hadn't even had an investigation, a rigged investigation around him? The Supreme Court would have to take, you know, there is no office, office of ethics for the Supreme Court, right? Um, it would be, you would have to uh, essentially find every person in there leading up to that. And the key question, here's, here's the question no one even remembers to ask, Mer um, ask Justice Kavanaugh as you're going through that. Who suddenly paid off his million plus dollars of debts in less than a week? He had, he had debts out the wazoo. He had debts out the wazoo. And they all vanished in the week leading up to his being appointed in the Supreme Court. Did somebody suddenly buy him? Who paid off all of that? Did his wife go to a Supreme Court Federal Credit Union and take out a home equity loan? Oh, my God. I don't even want the Trump administration can be summed up in one tweet that I saw after the election. It's all going to come out. Yeah. Well, amen to that. And Malcolm, so good to have you on again. Um, you know, every time that you and I speak, my my head is somewhere else because I've got a million more questions for you, but I'm going to leave it at that. I'd love to have you on again, uh, you know, as more of this starts to unfold because your insight into this is just second to none. So I want to thank you again for your time and for your um, information and for sharing your sources information with us. All right. Thanks, Mike. Good talking to you. And now for today's mea culpa. 
One of the great mysteries of Donald Trump's rise to power is that what made him so appealing to his followers is the exact same thing that made him so vulnerable to scandal and indictment. The narrative that he tried to present, and one that I helped to write, was that there was a man beholden to no one. He was a man who had made his fortune and reached the pinnacle of success and didn't need anyone to love or adore him. He'd already achieved everything. He didn't need any more money because there was enough for a thousand lifetimes. Thus, he and he alone was capable of taking on the corrupt Washington establishment and making it bend to his will and work for the people. We all saw how that worked out badly. Turns out he needed the money, lots of it, and was willing to compromise himself and the presidency to keep that money flowing. In one sense, Trump's embrace of populism and his self-anointment as the heir to a kind of modern-day Jacksonian democracy has made him into a strange kind of working-class hero. How a guy who never worked a hard day in his life, who has made a point of stiffing the little guy and never paying the bills, who loathes the sight of his own worshippers, can become the focus of messianic devotion is beyond me. Sure. I found myself at one time mesmerized by his celebrity and the proximity to that fame which blinded me to a host of serious shortcomings. But now that I see behind the curtain and know that not only does the emperor have no clothes, but that he's fucking disgusting, morally bankrupt fiend of the lowest order, it's beyond me how anyone can continue to follow this man or believe in anyone else who pays their allegiance to him. Just thinking about the tens of millions of Americans who love and adore Donald Trump makes me physically ill. Many of these people are among the most economically vulnerable and choose this man against their own self-interest. They choose the comfort of the culture war and identity politics and their own victimhood over having to ask hard questions that revealed hard truths. I just don't get it. And this is coming from someone who literally created Donald Trump. That said, it's not something I ever want to understand. That it sickens me is comfort enough to know that whatever once ailed me has been cured. For there is one correct response to Trump and his MAGA sycophants, and that's revulsion. How we cure the rest of this nation, still afflicted by Donald Trump, is something else entirely. But until we rescue people from their own sick devotion to this man, the country will continue to be in mortal danger. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth.
Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.